really excited about this morning, about the passage that we get to, to go into in Genesis, which we're continuing on in. Um, in fact, really, it just this week and next week, the stories that we'll cover in the life of Jacob are probably my two favorite stories in the whole book of Genesis. They're just, they're profound, they're engaging, that they're strange and they're powerful. And they're both about powerful encounters that Jacob has with God. Um, but because the way that we're going through Genesis in this series, we're not taking every single passage. We're, we're sort of getting the big picture. I, I wanted to spend some time before reading the passage for this week to bridge the gap with what we talked about last week to, to figure out how we got here. So, so you can already, if you have a Bible though, you can turn to Genesis chapter 28 and verse 10 is where we'll start our reading in a couple minutes. But first, let me just get us up to speed. So we, we'd been going through the story of Abraham and Abraham, the great man of faith, and then last week, Gary led us through the story that really focuses more on Isaac. So Isaac is the son of promise. He's the long-awaited son of Abraham and Sarah. And the story we went through last week was about Abraham sending a servant to get a wife for Isaac. Because in order for the blessing and the promise to carry on through Isaac, he needed a wife, he needed children, and he needed not to just link up with somebody who was committed to the idolatrous practices of the people surrounding them. And so Isaac ends up with a wife, Rebecca, who's this noble woman of faith who decides to come back, marry a man that she's never met because, because God is clearly in this thing. And as the story moves on, Isaac and Rebecca end up having the same infertility problems that Abraham and Sarah did. And it ends up after about 20 years, it takes them about 20 years, but finally Rebecca becomes pregnant. But when she does become pregnant, she's having trouble with the pregnancy. And so much trouble that she feels like she has to seek God to try to figure out what's going on inside of me. And the answer that God gives her is what's going on inside of you is twins. This is not an ordinary pregnancy. You've got twins in there. You have two sons and not only two sons, you have two sons who are going to become two nations. And then in Genesis 25, 23, God says to her, the older will serve the younger which was not the practice for inheritance rights. The firstborn was to be preeminent. And he gives us this cryptic clue at the beginning. There's going to be a reversal here. The older is going to serve the younger. Well, in this case, with these twins, the older was Esau and the younger was Jacob. And even though they were twins, if you read the story of them, it's hard to imagine two more different people. They were wild contrast to one another. And so Isaac comes out and even as a baby, he comes out hairy and manly. And he's just this hairy, manly outdoorsman. He's a hunter and his dad loves him. His dad is like, this is a man. This is my boy. He goes out and he kills things and then brings it back and we eat it. This is my guy. He loved Esau. Um, and Rebecca, but maybe in response, but Rebecca clings on to Jacob. And so each parent has their favorite. They're not subtle about it. Isaac's favorite is Esau. Rebecca's favorite is Jacob. And Jacob is much more of a homebody. He's like, I'm an indoor guy. I like hanging out indoors. I'm not going to go out and hunt. I, I like to be in the tents. He hangs out with his mom. It's, they're very different people in all of this. And, uh, and both of them have their favorites. And as the story goes on, there's an incident that happens between Jacob and Esau, which is really telling for both of their personalities. It reveals Esau to be sort of a boorish, impulsive, not really thinking things through man. And it shows Jacob to be an opportunistic schemer. 
what happens is that Esau has been out hunting. He's, he's tired from the hunt and he comes in. And when he comes back, Jacob's in the kitchen making some stew. And Esau says, oh my gosh, I'm so hungry. I would do anything to have some of that stew. And Jacob basically says, anything? So you mean you would give up your birthright? You would give up the right to be the firstborn just for some of this stew? And Esau says, I'm about to die. If I don't have that stew, what good is the birthright going to be? And Jacob says, swear. And Esau says, I swear. And in that moment, you really see both of them. You see just the boorish Esau not thinking things through. And you see the scheming Jacob looking for opportunities. That's the first run-in that they have together, but there's another more significant one that happens in Genesis chapter 27. And this has not to do with the family birthright, but with the family blessing. And here's why this is more significant. Abraham received a blessing from God. He was going to be at the head of a nation that would end up blessing the world of God's called out and chosen people for God to put on display who he was to the rest of the world. And then when it came time to pass on that blessing, it was going to clearly go to Isaac because he was the son of promise. He was the only son that was born to both Rebecca, I'm I'm sorry, to both Abraham and Sarah. But now time for the blessing to be poured, uh, to be passed on. It's not totally clear. We have twins. We have brothers. It could be passed on to one or the other. Which one is going to be at the center of God's unfolding vision? Now, if you were to go back to the oracle that God gave to Rebecca, you'd already have a clue. You'd say, all right, well, if the older is going to serve the younger, it seems like Jacob is the son of the promise. But Isaac doesn't see it that way. He's getting old. In fact, he's old enough that he's lost most of his eyesight. He thinks death is imminent. So he calls Esau in and he says, I got to get the blessing to you. I got to pass along the promise to you. So here's what you do. Go out, do what you do, get an animal, kill it, make it into a meal. We'll eat it together and I'll bless you. So Esau leaves to go and do this. While he's leaving to go do this, Rebecca overhears the whole deal. And when she overhears it, she goes to Jacob and she says, now's our chance. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to trick your dad into thinking that you're Esau and he's going to bless you. And Jacob's thinking there's some problems with this. Esau's this big, hairy man's man. I'm smooth. So this, and you can read this in Genesis 27. I'm not making any of this up. They take animal skins and put it on Jacob's arms and they put some of sort of the smell of Esau's clothes around him so that when he goes into his blind father, Isaac is meant to think it's Esau. And he says, well, you don't sound like Esau, but he feels his arm. He says, well, you feel like Esau and you definitely smell like Esau. And you brought me a meal, all right, I'll go ahead and bless you. And he passes along the blessing to Jacob, thinking that he's passing it along to Esau. Well, when Esau gets back, guess what? He's not happy with what's gone down. And Isaac suddenly has a realization that he has been tricked. Isaac passes along just sort of a, a token afterthought blessing to Esau, but Jacob gets the family blessing. And there's going to be fallout from this, because if you already have opened up to Genesis 28, the previous page or the previous chapter, Genesis chapter 27, 41 says this, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. In other words, dad is not long for this world. 
When he dies, Jacob's next. And it's in this setting that Rebecca once again overhears. I think this is just what she did. She went around overhearing things. She always kind of had an ear out and she knew what was going on in the tents. So she overhears what's going on. She goes back to Jacob and she says, we got to get you out of here. Your brother's going to kill you. And so they catch a plan and the plan is pretty reasonable. We saw last week that we needed Isaac to get a bride from his extended family instead of from the nations around who worshiped other gods. And so Rebecca goes to Isaac and she says, we need to get Jacob a wife from our extended family. So let's send him back to my extended family so that he can find a wife there. Isaac agrees that this is a good idea and Jacob is sent on his way. And that's where we reach the story that we're gonna go through today. Jacob is on the run and he is about to have a powerful divine encounter. And I'm going to read through our passage for this morning. It's in Genesis chapter 28. I'm going to read verses 10 through 22 and follow along in your Bible. Although if you don't have one, you can follow along with the words here on the screen that we'll scroll through as I'm reading. Genesis 28 verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I will return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This is God's word. Let's pray together as we move forward. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that you are a God who shows grace, who pours out goodness. Thank you that you're a God who surprises us. And thank you that you're a God who reaches to us in our desperation. We pray that you speak to us during this time. We pray that you lead us as a group and as individuals in how you're calling us to respond to your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. So obviously this is a powerful story about an encounter with God. And it's more than just a story about an encounter with God. It's even more specifically an encounter with God's grace. 
And you might be thinking, I, I didn't hear the word grace. The, the word grace isn't overtly in this passage, and yet it really stands at the center of this story. In fact, in his commentary on Genesis, Derek Kidner says, this is a supreme display of divine grace, unsought and unstinted. By unsought, he meant Jacob didn't go looking for this. And unstinted means that God didn't hold back once he gave it. This is a supreme display of divine grace. And what we'll see from Jacob in this story is that our lives are transformed when we encounter God's grace. Now, if God's grace is at the center of the story, let, let me just spend some time. Let's try to get our minds around what God's grace means. Um, God's grace is about him giving unearned gifts to undeserving people. In other words, God's grace is not when you work hard all year and then at the end of the year, you get a Christmas bonus. Grace is if you are hired by the company during the last week of the year and even though you hadn't spent a single day in the office, you still get the same bonus as everyone else. Grace is not where you work really hard on a group project and then at the end of it, along with all your other team members, you get an A. Grace is when you were sick for the entire time of the group project, but everybody else worked hard and you end up getting the A even though you did nothing. Grace is not that somebody does your taxes when you pay them a lot of money. Grace is when somebody does their taxes for free. I'm not trying to hint at any tax people. I know that you work hard <laughs> for what you do. Grace is the reception of unearned gifts by undeserving people. And there's many ways that God gives his grace. He gives his grace just through our daily lives, just through the fact that we are alive today. It's a mark of God's grace. It's a mark of God giving good gifts to undeserving people. Those of us who have families or have friends in our lives, those of us who have any relative amount of health, these are evidences of God's grace. God loves to give unearned gifts to undeserving people. And at the same time, there's definitely some of us in this room this morning that if we're honest, we're saying, I'm, I'm doubting. You're going through something that's making you doubt. You say, all right, I've, I've read the verses. I know that they're in there. I know that the Bible's God's word. I, I know that that's there, but I'm doubting God's goodness. I'm doubting God's grace. I'm doubting that the God of the Bible is the God who really does meet us when we're low and show us undeserved favor. And there could be a lot of legitimate reasons why you're doubting that this morning. But if you're doubting that, what I want to invite you to do is tag along on this story as Jacob has this divine encounter that's a display of God's grace. And the story begins in verses 10 and 11 with the setting that we get. And what we get to see right away is that God's grace comes to the desperate, now, we already had the lead up to this story. Jacob is on the run. Verse 10 says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran, where he's going to see his extended family. Verse 11 says, when he reached a certain place. And the, the reason this is a little bit funny is because later on at the end of the passage, we're told we know what the name of this place is. 
It's a place called Luz, or L-U-Z. This is actually a pretty well-known city among the Canaanites. But here, it's just a certain place. Jacob doesn't know where he is. He's on the run from his brother. This place has no significance to him. To him, it's just a certain anonymous place. He stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Now, I think it is fair to say this is the lowest moment of Jacob's life. This is as bad as it has become for him. He's on the run. His brother wants to kill him. He doesn't have any family around. He's sort of between the family that he had to leave and between the family that he's going towards. He stays in a place and he doesn't even know where the place is. The sun has gone down. It's probably cold. And you know what his pillow is? It's a rock. This is a bad place. Jacob has reached rock bottom. Oh, there's a pun there. Right. (laughs) Didn't even plan that. Jacob is about as desperate as a person can get. And as you think back on your lives, there's probably a lot of us that we can think to times that we were really low. Think to times that we just thought, it can't get worse than this. Or even where we've had to ask ourselves, how did I get here? How did events transpire? How did events conspire to get me to this point where I'm this desperate, where I'm this low, where I'm this needy, where I'm this uncertain about my future. Jacob is at a point of desperation. And it's fair just to put this in here. It's mostly his fault. It's not 100% his fault. You could point towards Rebecca and say, well, gosh, she was really kind of getting the wheels going with this thing. All right, fair enough. And you could point to Esau. No matter what Jacob did, Esau's murderous revenge plot is not appropriate. So there are some outside forces, but, but really, this is mostly Jacob's fault. And I don't know if you're like me, but there are times where I find myself in desperation um, and I look at the situation and if, if I determine this really is mostly because of other people's sin, I feel much more entitled for God to do something. I feel like I'm in a bad situation, but it's not my fault, so God should come through. The times that I've been desperate and I've had to come to grips with the fact it's mostly my fault, It's hard to expect God to bail you out. Jacob's desperate, and it's really mostly his fault. And really the reason he got to this point is because he was desperate for that blessing. He was desperate for that because that was going to solve the problems. That was going to make life right. That was going to put him in the position where life would be everything he imagined it to be. If he could just get that blessing. And he got that blessing. And now it's all fallen apart. Jacob is at a point of desperation. And what he's about to find out is when you are desperate, you are in the perfect position to have an encounter with God's grace. It's not just Jacob who experiences this. After we go through the Jacob story in the following weeks, we'll go through the story of his son, Joseph. And when Joseph is in a dungeon in Egypt, it turns out he's in exactly the right position for a divine encounter with God's grace. If you go on to the book of Exodus and you read there, you find out that when a bunch of Israelites are oppressed slaves in a foreign land, they're in the ideal position to receive God's grace. 
you keep reading, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament is the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth tells us that when two widows are returning from exile and they're husbandless and penniless, they're in an ideal position to encounter God's grace. And if you read the Gospels, like some of us have been doing in the LBF Church Bible reading plan, you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you will find that when you are deaf, and when you are mute, and when you are blind, and when you're crippled, and when you're demon-possessed, you are in an ideal position to experience God's grace. So let me just ask this for us this morning. Are you overwhelmed? Are you ashamed? Are you sick? Are you listless and purposeless and antsy? Are you unemployed? Are you at a point right now where things look dark? And if you are, I invite you to believe that you are in an ideal position. You are exactly where God wants you to be to receive God's grace. God's grace comes to the desperate. And some of you right now are like, wow, you just named off a bunch of things, but thankfully none of them apply to me. I'd be like, thank God. And, and if that's true, all right, thank God, because those are hard things to go through. But what you need to understand if that's true of you is that even though you don't outwardly recognize your desperation, it is still there. You are desperate for your next breath. And that parenting thing that you're dealing with right now, that you're thinking, I think I got this. You don't have that. You are desperate. The marriage right now that you're like, no, we're doing really well right now. You don't have that under control. You are desperate. Your finances, which are going smooth, you are desperate. And your sin that right now you're experiencing some victory over, you are desperate. Really, in the Bible, we have two options. We can either humble ourselves before God or we can be humbled by God. And I wanna just invite us all Let's humble ourselves before God because in more than one place in the Bible, God says that he gives grace to the humble. If we want God's grace, we have to be humble. We have to be desperate. And sometimes God makes us desperate through those external circumstances. And that's what's happened with Jacob. He's at the absolute end of himself and then he has this powerful encounter. And so we see just in the setting for this, God's grace comes to the desperate. But what we see in the heart of this story is that God's grace is given, not earned. Now, verse 12 is the, the turning point here. It says, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And so it's this beautiful vision. And, and some of you have your Bibles open and you have a slightly different translation. And so instead of stairway, it says ladder. Um, the, the Hebrew word really could be either, but probably stairway is the better image because it talks about angels ascending and descending. And so if that's going on at the same time, it, it makes more sense on a stairway. So congratulations to Led Zeppelin. They probably got this one right in their song. So he sees the stairway, but here's the heart of the image. The heart of the image is that angels are going up and going down on this thing because in this place and in this moment, heaven and earth have come together. Heaven and earth have been joined. God and man are inhabiting the same space. It's a powerful image of this idea. And if you think back earlier in Genesis, back in the fall, we went through Genesis 11, which is the story of the Tower of Babel. 
And the story of the Tower of Babel is basically a story about a bunch of people that say, you know what, we're going to bring heaven and earth together. And we're going to bring heaven and earth together by building a tower that reaches to the gods, that reaches to the heavens, and God thwarts their plan. And you might say, I know why God thwarted their plan, because heaven and earth aren't supposed to come together. That's actually not right. The problem wasn't that heaven and earth aren't supposed to come together. The problem is that heaven and earth don't come together because we reach up. Heaven and earth come together because God reaches down. Heaven and earth come together in this moment, not because Jacob had accomplished some amazing thing. Heaven and earth come together because God determines it to be so. Heaven and earth are connected. God and man are inhabiting the same space in this moment. And then look at verse 13. It says, there above it stood the Lord. This is the God of Abraham and Isaac. This is the God who has revealed himself to Jacob's forefathers. And he identifies himself that way. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. Now, on the surface, we could say, yeah, of course, we're, we're used to that. Even if you've read Genesis, there's a lot of times he later on identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No big red flags when we see him identify himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac. But I want you to pause, and I can't prove this, but, but I think that this is a pretty reasonable thing to think right here. I think when Jacob hears God say, I am the God of Isaac, he would probably think, I'm in a lot of trouble. Because what did he just do to Isaac? He just tricked his blind father. I mean, tricking a blind guy? That's just messed up. I don't care who you are. That's not okay. He has tricked his blind father into giving the family blessing. Just, just imagine that you're a kid. And imagine you're a kid and you're picking on another kid. You're picking on some kid named Joey. And Joey's smaller than you, so you can do this. And you're kind of messing with him. You're calling him names, harassing Joey. And suddenly you run up against somebody that's a lot bigger than you. And he says, hi, I'm Joey's brother. You know you're in trouble. Jacob sees the vision and God says, I'm Isaac's God. It's hard to imagine that Jacob wasn't thinking in that moment, well, a bad situation just got worse. I thought I had reached the bottom, but I'm about to be judged by the God of my father who I just tricked. That certainly is what Jacob would have deserved in this moment. But shockingly, it's not what he gets because grace is not earned, but given. The end of verse 13, God starts into a blessing that basically parallels the blessing that he gave to Abraham and the blessing that he gave to Isaac. He says, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring, which means Jacob's going to live long enough to get offspring. I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land and will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. Which, by the way, doesn't mean he's going to leave him after he's done what he's promised. He's just saying, I am with you and I'm going to stay with you and do everything that I've just promised you that I'm going to do. Jacob just had a divine encounter with God's grace because there is no other way to explain what just went down. Jacob deserved judgment and instead, he got promises. Grace is undeserved gifts 
that are given to people who haven't earned them. Jacob has a divine encounter with God's grace. And I just want you to think about this for a second because the the reason that the story is so powerful, the reason that this is such an amazing thing is because in Jacob, we really can find ourselves in a way that might be harder to find ourselves in Abraham and Isaac. Um, Jacob is deeply flawed. Even after Jacob is changed by the encounter he has here, but even after he's kind of back and forth, he trusts God and then he doesn't trust God and he's a schemer. He kind of manipulates things and he's good at manipulating things so he can try to get what he's wanted. He, he can really approach life thinking, if I play my cards right, I can get everything that I want out of life. And the thing that he wanted out of, out of life was that blessing and he was able to get it. And we all approach that in different ways in our lives. So for us, we're not after a family blessing. That's not the same for us, but we are after the same concept. We want our lives to be good. We want our lives to be fruitful. We want our lives to be successful. We want to live in a way that we feel like I'm really experiencing what life should be giving me here. And so we pursue that in different ways and we manipulate things in different ways. And so we try to do it through pleasure and through bodily pleasure. So you say, all right, well, whatever I need to eat, whatever I need to drink, whatever I need to smoke, whatever I need to do with regard to sex, I will do things so that my body feels good because that's what it's like to experience the good life. And so we pursue it through pleasure. Or some of us say, well, I'm not going to do that so much, but I'm going to pursue it by possessions. I'm going to say the good life is when you have lots of stuff because when you have lots of stuff, you can use lots of stuff and using lots of stuff is really fun. And not only is it fun, people are impressed with you. And when people are impressed with you, that's fun. And when you have lots of stuff, you also aren't worried about the future. So, you know, accumulation, possessions, that's how I'm going to pursue the blessed life, the good life. And so we manipulate things to try to make that a reality. But let me just throw out another option because some of you might be thinking, no, no, like I, the, the pleasure thing, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm carnal like other people, but, but it's not the same. I'm not really going full board after that. And yeah, I like stuff, but I'm not just trying to accumulate a whole bunch of stuff. Um, let me suggest to you that another way that we try to experience that blessing is not by pursuing pleasure or possessions, but by pursuing morality. How can this guy knock on Morality. Morality is a lot of times based around the idea that we say, I know how my life is going to be good. I'll follow all the rules and then God will have to give me stuff. God will be obligated to me. And not only that, but you know what? You can get a high from drugs and you can get a high from sex and you can get a high from possessions, but those things rarely compete with the high that you can get when you've convinced yourself that you're better than other people. You might be trying to pursue blessing through morality. All of these things are empty pursuits. We're all after the blessing. And Jacob desperately tries to manipulate events to get him the blessing. And it turns out that the only way he's going to get the blessing is by it being given to him by grace. God pours out his grace and we can never earn it. And there's a final movement to the story, and it has to do with Jacob's response. He responds to the events that he experiences. And and just before even reading it, I want to couch this in this way. The fact that Jacob responds does not mean that Jacob earned the grace. He did not earn the grace. But what it does mean is when God pours out grace, we often still have the option to cast it off. 
God may offer the grace completely free, but we still have to make the choice to receive it. So Jacob starts to respond. He says, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. This was just a certain place, but the Lord was in this place. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so he responds to the wonder that he experienced. It says, early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on it. He called the place Bethel, which means house of God, though the city used to be called Luz. And what he's doing here is he's commemorating the event. He's saying, all right, I'm going to take this stone that represented my absolute desperation and now I'm going to set it up as a way to remember what God did here. And then Jacob makes a vow. And he says, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I will return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. And some of you might be thinking, all right, this is Jacob being a schemer again. He's like, all right, God, I'm all yours as long as... But this isn't Jacob bargaining. This isn't Jacob being a schemer. And the reason you know it's not is because all that Jacob is saying that he needs God to do is the stuff that God already said he's going to do. He's basically saying to God, all right, if you're really gonna do all this stuff, if you're really gonna take care of me, if you're really gonna bless me, if you're really gonna be with me, if you're really gonna fulfill all these promises, then here's the deal, God, I'm in. I'm in, you've got me. You've got me, I'm desperate, I'm needy. If you're making these promises, I'm in. I'll follow you, I'll trust you, you'll be my God, I'll worship you. In fact, he even goes above and beyond and says, I'm gonna tithe to you, I'm gonna give you a tenth of everything that I have to reflect the fact that you're the true giver of all these. God, if you're gonna do all this, I'm in. God loves to pour out his grace and don't ever think that your response to God is you somehow earning that grace because it's not. But God often pours out grace in a way that we can make the poor choice because of our pride or because of our disobedience to cast that grace aside. Grace requires a response. Grace requires us humbling ourselves to recognize our neediness and respond to God by saying, all right, I don't like how I got to this place. I don't like my desperation. I don't like that it's mostly my fault that I'm at this point of desperation. But God, you've made promises. You've promised to work all things for my good. You've promised to be with me through the Holy Spirit. You've promised that you'll always be there with me. You've promised that in the end, I have eternal life waiting for me if I place my faith in Jesus. So you know what, God? I'm in. I could never earn this, but I'm in and I will trust you. And you know what the odd thing is? Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, in many ways, the response that you're called to is basically the same. If you are not a believer in Jesus, if you are not a Christian, the response that you are invited to have to all of this is to say, okay, God, I recognize it. Sometimes I don't recognize it, but I know that I'm desperate. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm guilty before you and that I deserve hell because of my sin. I know that I can't figure out life on my own. I know that I'm called to a divine purpose, but I can't figure out, God, I need you. So if you really are gonna forgive my sin through Jesus, if you really are gonna bring me eternal life, if you really are gonna give me the Holy Spirit, if you really are gonna make all things new, then you know what, God, I'm in. I trust you, I give you my faith, I give you my life, I'm in. And if you are a believer in Jesus, this basically means the same thing. 
just means that you've already made the big, I'm in. But day by day, when you're tempted to go astray, and when you're tempted to despair, and when you're tempted to manipulate events to try to bring about your own blessing, instead you say, you know what, God? You are the giver of grace. I can't earn it. I can't manipulate for it. God, you have made me promises. I'm in. I trust that following your path, I trust that moving forward in your ways, I trust that holding on to the hope that you've given instead of caving into despair, I trust that this will make everything come through. We see in the Jacob story that our lives are transformed when we encounter God's grace. And some of you right now are probably thinking, yeah, but that would have been cool. I mean, Jacob really had an encounter. Like, that's pretty great. You know, when you read this story and when you read verse 12 in this dream with this stairway that connects heaven, that's really great. Why can't I have an encounter with grace like that? And what I want to tell you is, if you're a believer in Jesus, you actually already have. In fact, you've had a better encounter than Jacob had. I got to show you something that Jesus said, but first let, let me set up for it. The verse I'm about to show you is in John chapter one. And it comes in the context where Jesus is starting to gather his disciples and there's a guy named Nathaniel that comes to Jesus and Jesus does some amazing miraculous things that show right away that Jesus knows things about Nathaniel that nobody else should know. And Nathaniel is impressed by this and he says, you're really somebody. And then Jesus in John 1 51 basically says to him, you think that was good, you ain't seen nothing yet. John 151, he says, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, do you see what Jesus is doing here? This is an unmistakable reference right back to Genesis 28, 12, when angels are ascending and descending on what? On a stairway, on a staircase. But here he says, you're going to see another time that angels are going to ascend and descend. But this time, what are they ascending and descending on? The Son of Man, on Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying, a stairway that connects heaven and earth is good. I am the new stairway. I am the greater stairway. I connect heaven and earth. I connect God and man. You don't need to have a dream about a staircase because you have the living son of God that not just in a moment, but once for all has connected heaven and earth and has connected God and man. And once we have that divine encounter with God's grace, we are never the same. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you so much that you have sent Jesus for us. Thank you so much that as amazing as the story is, and as much as we would long for that experience of seeing that vision, you've given us something even better. You've given us not the shadow, but the reality. Father, I pray that you lead us in our times of desperation, that we wouldn't despair, that we wouldn't turn to sin, that we wouldn't turn to our own strivings or manipulations, but that we would use our times of desperation as occasions where you are prompting us to place our full trust in you. Father, I pray that you lead us during the times that we so desperately want to prove ourselves and earn your grace. Humble us so that we recognize that could never happen. And Father, I pray that you lead us at the times where we want to turn away from the good gifts that you're offering. 
I pray that you give us hearts that are soft and responsive to you. And Father, I pray just for the people who are really experiencing desperation this morning. Father, just give them a glimpse, give them a hint, give them a taste of your presence. Show them that you are with them in a way that will sustain them during this time so that their encounter with your grace will sustain them during the time of darkness and uncertainty. We pray this in the name of the true staircase that connects us to you, of Jesus Christ. Amen.